This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, where can I find forgiveness? We're asking today's big question to John Rusnak. John is a former Wall Street trader, and in 2001, he was convicted for his part in a financial scandal at Allied Irish Banks, which resulted in a jail term. Since he's returned to society, John has become an advocate for second chances for men coming home from incarceration and for those in drug and alcohol rehabilitation. And he joins me now. John, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you for having me on. It's great that you can join us. Now, John, we're so glad you could talk with us today. Maybe, so maybe you want to tell us a bit about your story. So maybe you can take us back in some ways to the start about life as a trader. So what was your job in the bank? What, what did it involve? So uh, I worked on a proprietary trading desk, meaning I used the bank's own money. Um, you know, in the old days, banks would, uh, the joke was they would borrow money at 3%, lend it out at 6% and be on the golf course by 3 p.m. <laughs> But uh, as, uh, as as banking became a little more complex, they uh, they started to invest money and uh, and really not lend it out. They would simply um, generate fee income, so sort of lend money and then and then package them up. You know the mortgage scandals, right? Package them up, resell them, and then they would use the capital for investment. And the vast majority of the capital went to pretty conservative uh, investments like stocks and bonds. But a very small percentage would be dedicated to uh, proprietary trading, high risk. Um, high frequency, high yield trading. And that's really what I did my whole career in New York and in Baltimore. So your goal there was to, to make money at a higher return then for the bank? Yes. And, and, uh, and our compensation package uh, dictated that to us. I mean, we were given a percentage of, of what we made, uh, more than reasonable percentage of what we made when I came to Maryland. And, uh, and the joke was, and if you lose a lot of money, you just walk out and it's their money. It's a uh, OPP, as they say in the markets, other people's money. You're trading or gambling, so to speak, with other people's money. And, uh, and you get a cut if you win and you get fired if you lose. So what was the culture like then? So you were, were you on the golf course at three? Uh, we, well, it's funny, you know, because, um, you know, nowadays I still play a little bit of golf, but I, I found that since I've, um, come home from my incarceration, that it's actually possible to play golf and not be drunk. <laughs> and it's actually possible to go to a football game or a baseball game and act, not act like an idiot and get into a fight. So, uh, so yeah, we did, we, um, we worked very hard. I probably worked 70 hours a week. Uh, but, uh, but when we were not working, we were out doing whatever we wanted. And uh, you know, yeah, unfortunately, you're young and you have a very high income and uh, it allows you to do a lot of silly things. So it was and it was a heavy drinking culture. There was a drug culture. Yeah. So you're trying to make these high risk uh, decisions fueled with drugs and alcohol effectively. I learned this very early. I, I was sent at my first job out of college was with a bank called uh, Fidelity Bank in Philadelphia. And uh, we had a pretty active derivatives trading desk that had three centers. We had we had offices in um, Hong Kong, London and uh, and Philadelphia, of all places. And uh, I got sent over to the London office and the chief dealer, great guy, but uh, had recently been divorced. He looked at me. I was a young kid. He's like, you're with me. So that means we would trade all morning, go to the bar and drink and stand in a circle and everyone would buy around at the pub. And then we were good and tight, as he would always say it. We would go back and trade the afternoon session, which was the New York session. And then when we were done with that, we'd go back to the same bar, stand around a circle, each have a drink. And then and, and inevitably, the next line would be, anybody fancy a curry? <laughs> so we go out for a curry and then end up, it's like these illegal casinos at night and 
Barbican car home and 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 just get up around the morning and go back and do the same thing. I mean, it was, um, I guess, in some ways, in a secular way, you could say it was exciting, but it was a very empty and vapid life. Mm, wow. Yeah. So then what went wrong? Obviously, there's there's a culture here that there's some challenges with that culture anyway. But what went wrong with you um, in your trading? Well, I think it had to do with some psychological issues I'd never really dealt with. Um, I grew up um, in a middle class, lower middle class uh, family uh, in an Italian neighborhood in Philadelphia and with a, a culture that didn't have a lot of regard for the police or the law. So, um, but I was very smart and I received a scholarship to a, a fancy school. And, you know, I remember the first meeting I had on the first hall meeting I had on, I had a American football jersey uh, and a mm -hmm. cap on sideways and jeans and, and sneakers. And everyone else had on a blue blazer and a rep tie and penny loafers with the pennies in them, you know? So it was, uh, it was a culture that I wasn't familiar with. And I just decided, well, I can fit into this. So I went home and had my mom buy me all this stuff. And I started to act like I was part of this uh, more elite private school culture. Um, and then that translated to Wall Street as well. It would appear to people that I was very self-confident. I actually felt really out of place. And uh, mm -hmm. the only way I could really make myself feel better, because I had a hole in my heart like all of us do. And I, instead of filling it with Christ, I filled it with pride. So um, uh, I, would, uh, I would do everything I could to prove that I was smarter than other people. And when I made money, that showed me that I was better than them. And, uh, and the problem with that was that I had no recognition that, um, that my profits uh, and success were correlated to a great team effort. Uh, mm -hmm. So living, working in New York, I had uh, quantitative analysis guys, I had charting guys, I had uh, technical guys that built our models. We had a great sales team that generated a lot of deal flow. When I got down to Baltimore, I had none of that. It was, I, I was, it was like trading out of a paper bag. I had no information and didn't know anybody. And, uh, and I quickly started to lose money. And um, what happened is that the you know, reality crashed into the fantasy I had created about myself, that I was an amazing person, that I was super smart, I was smarter than everybody else. And that I, was, I, I had defined myself as a trader. So uh, when things didn't go as expected, I lost all my norms. Uh, I lost my foundation and I stopped doing the things that would make me profitable and started acting like an idiot. And uh, you know how that snowballs really quickly. So that's mm, what happened. Mm. So you say, uh, obviously, unfortunately, you acted like an, an idiot. But what did that mean? You were making risky trades or you just continued losing money or what, what, what did you do? Yeah, so if you ever seen the drunken idiot at the casino that's standing in front of the roulette table that bets $50 on the red and it comes out black, he says, well, now I'll bet 100 and it comes out black again. And he's now he switches to red and bets 200 and it comes out black. And then he from 200, he bets 500. Next thing you know, he's, uh, you know, opening up a second mortgage on his home. Uh, so it was very similar to that. As I started to lose money, I would generate um more and more activity uh, brought more and more people into the game, so to speak. Uh, started finding sources to borrow money so I could leverage up even more, you know, and and, and just just increase my activity in a sort of a stupor of hoping that I could make it back with increased risk. But the bank didn't find out. One thing I'm really clear about is I take responsibility for my own actions and my own sin, and yeah. uh, this was my fault and. Uh, these were things that I did and uh, totally cool with that. But there was also a willful blindness. It's a really good American legal term if you haven't heard it before. Yeah. Uh, they, they didn't want to um, look too deep into something that seemingly was making money. And they thought I was a hotshot and thought I'd be able to make them more money and make them look good. So, uh, mm. you know, we built, we built a trading room with a locked door on it and nobody came in there and nobody knew us. And we were like the black box, so to speak, like we'll just give them the money and leave them alone. And, uh, 
and let him keep trading. And, and, and yeah, we know he's kind of a jerk and we're pretty sure he's drunk most nights, but that's okay. Just don't, yeah, don't ask, you know, don't ask, don't tell, I suppose. Right, yeah. And so your losses started mounting though. They did. Yeah. They, they, they eventually rounded up to about $750 million, which was uh, a staggering loss at the time. Nowadays we see these things, we see these things, uh, these rogue trader incidents are billions of dollars now. So, uh, I'm just thankful that it stopped before it was any worse. That's a staggering amount of money. But but were you trying to do things, you were doing things to sort of prevent the bank uh, from seeing the losses, you were hiding the losses in some sense? Absolutely, yeah. Well, you know, we changed our charter at the bank from a uh, federal charter to a state charter. Um, and that really helped a lot because the state auditors had no idea. Um, so we were able to easily dis you know, to keep that secret from the, the auditors and then also our internal auditors and different people that weren't sort of, um, that didn't understand. Um, yes, I was very deceptive. I mean, you know, part of the sin is greed and pride, uh, but mm -hmm. part of the sin is lying and, uh, and uh, manipulation and uh, using sort of aggression in order to put people off because anybody that came and asked me about stuff, I would just start screaming at them and saying, like, you have no idea who, you, who you're talking to and get the heck out of here. And, uh, Unfortunately, I found that that kind of um, terrible behavior was incredibly effective in keeping people away. So did you, did you think that your fraud could be kept hidden forever? Uh, no, no, I didn't. But I, I, I didn't, I wasn't thinking clearly, so I didn't have a way out. And mm. uh, like I, despite being a very sinful person, I, I claimed my salvation from my middle school days. And, uh, and I did often pray to God to take me out of it, you know, to solve this problem for me. I, 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 what I hoped for, what I was actually praying for, is that we would have a big, um, you know, a big market reversal and I'd make it all back and uh, they'd make me the CEO of the bank and that would be great, right? But uh, he, did take, <laughs> he did take me out of it, but not in the way I expected. But it actually worked quite well for my long term. So what happened then? How, how did it come out? Uh, so we were in the midst of a... Um, uh, selling the bank to another to another larger institution called M&T Bank, which is still around. Uh, when a bank purchases another bank, there's a due diligence process where they investigate the books. It all sort of came out, it came, came to a head at that point because they couldn't explain the massive holes we had in our balance sheet and why I was borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars every day. And I had all these crazy options on that weren't, that didn't look right. So um, it came out in the midst of that. And um, you know, I, I knew the jig was up, so to speak. So, um, mm. so I just, but I walked into somebody's office and said, I'm finished. So don't, don't try to contact me. I'm leaving. And, uh, eventually, uh, I had to tell my wife, which was not, not a great day, let's just say. Um, but thankfully she loves me and knows that God hates divorce. So she stuck it out with me much to the benefit of, uh, me, my children, our family, hopefully to her as well. But once I'd done that, we decided that um, she she sort of suggested that, yeah, I'll stay with you, but now you have to do what's right in the sight of mm -hmm. God. And like, you need, to, you need to go and accept responsibility for what you did. So I, I contacted a, uh, a buddy of mine who's a lawyer. And when he heard my story, he said, I could not possibly handle this. You were in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you were convicted of fraud. How did it feel to have your actions on the front page of the Wall Street Journal? Well, that's funny because it was actually quite relieving. You know, I mean, I, I, I think about this a lot and it's so damaging to hold on to a sin and uh, and try to keep it secret from everybody. 
You know, you're always worried about exposure. Not not only just exposure that um, that will get you arrested, but exposure, you know, for everyone else that will make you look terrible. Having this thing plastered in like 36 font on the front of the journal and the Baltimore Sun and the London Times and the Irish Times, like uh, it was actually quite relieving because then I realized that, okay, well, now everyone knows the worst secret that I have and there's still people that love me. And you went to jail. So how did you feel when you received that sentence? I felt relieved. It was around the same time that the Enron guys had been sentenced, if you're familiar with the Enron scandal. And uh, yeah. I, I was right before them, and they all received 25 years. So um, now the, their crime was much bigger magnitude, but it was a similar um, deception and fraud and uh, prideful, ignorant, prideful arrogance, I should say. So uh, I was quite happy getting seven and a half years. I thought that uh, that my lawyer had done a great job. and and that the, the prosecutor in particular um, had showed me um, a great deal of grace. Mm, mm. So then who do you blame? I mean, you talked a little bit about some of the, the, your responsibility. You do take responsibility, but who do you blame for your weakness? Was it you know, the bank culture that your friends you had at the time, the, the greedy capitalist system, you know, the bonus structure that you had? Yeah. Where, where, where do you put the blame for your behavior? I put the blame on myself for not dealing with my own psychological issues from a young age, like really feeling unsure about who I was and uh, really trying to prove that I was something that I wasn't. Um, and and the money and influence and, uh, and and hierarchy stuff really became a way for me to, to make myself feel better. I and mean, it's just a terrible thing. I mean, I, I, I wish I had gotten some, some great Christian counseling before all this, I, my life would have been a lot different. Now, now that being said, um, there are some systemic problems with, um, with the financial market system. There were some terrible problems with our bank who was ill-equipped to be doing what I was doing. Um, and, uh, and there were also lots of people on the way that were in the middle of it as well. Um, but primarily, and the majority of the fault right, right here on, on my own heart. Hmm. And you also read the Bible a lot in jail. What did you I discover? Did. I, mean, I, I realized the Bible is, um, is intentionally complicated and very deep and uh, not just an emotional experience, but an intellectual experience as well. And it reveals the true God, I would say from tree to tree, from the tree in Genesis, the tree in Revelation, that Jesus, who was uh, who, who was with God, who was God, and nothing was created without him, uh, was all through the Old Testament. And uh, I, I learned the richness of, of, of other languages. The first couple years I was in, I just sort of sat under other people's teachings. There were an incredible amount of volunteers that came in. But they taught us the Bible, and then there were a tremendous amount of guys who were in, who had been in 10, 20, 30 years, who had been studying. And uh, I sat under them in Bible studies, and, uh, you know, at least four nights a week we'd have volunteers in, and then we'd have Bible study every night in someone's cell. So how did prison change you? Uh uh, so much. I mean, I mean, I, I do want to be clear that prison is no fun, obviously, and it's not the greatest place to be. It has mostly to do with deprivation of contact with your family and, and sort of loss of freedom and people telling you what to do all the time is a drag. But it did provide a humility that um, I, I am 100 percent certain that I never would achieve without it. Um, you know, in the sense that I couldn't do what I wanted, that uh, I had to recognize the fact that a lot of choices I'd made in life were horrendous. And I could see around all around me the consequence of my mistakes. So, um, so it it humbled me. From the beginning, I was humiliated by the exposure, but I but I really think God changed humiliation into humility. You know, like humiliation is what you allow other people to do to you, but humility is what you do to yourself. Like you, I place myself appropriately lower than others. 
Now, there's one particular passage from the Bible which really resonated with you when you were reading uh, in jail from the letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, Philippians 1 verse 6, which says about God, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So what was so comforting about this for you? You know, I, I had been very self-reliant in my life and uh, and always sort of very sure that I was sort of publicly portraying that I was good enough, mm. but privately, privately sort of crying out knowing that I wasn't good enough. So this verse helped me quite a lot because um, I knew that my eternity and my salvation was not based on my behavior, but it was based on his. So I, I say this verse a lot, like I can, I can be confident in just one thing, that he was beyond this good work in me, that he will complete it to the day of perfection in Jesus mm. Christ. And, uh, and it really changed my whole perspective. So, so there was a sense that this sort of really brought some hope then, I suppose, for the future for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my hope is in Christ. My hope can't be in anything else. I mean, mm. having my hope in financial reward does not work out. If anyone's listening, you're thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so much more happy now than I ever was when we had tons of money. Uh, but because my hope is in is in eternity. And, and I don't, so when I say my hope is in Christ, I, I don't mean that everything's going to be perfect here. We're talking about forgiveness today, John. What do you, what is it exactly is forgiveness? Well, I mean, I think it's a heart issue. It's a deep-seated heart issue. The ability to say that, um, although I'm not worthy, someone, this Jesus, believes me to be worthy. So in, in another letter that Paul wrote, this time to the Colossians, uh, he writes about the heart of Christian forgiveness, where he writes, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So how do you reflect on these words as someone who's made a, a massive error? I, I, think, I think this is one of the things I'm best at, right? I'm best at acknowledging what an ass I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> like I know no one has to, I mean, I do have lots of friends in my life for correction, but I know how foolish I am uh, yeah. before you can tell me. And I think that that's sort of one of the really key things with forgiveness is, like, is saying that um, I am so desperately in need of a savior. And I am so desperately in need of good friends to support me. And, uh, and so I have to constantly be, A, uh, seeking forgiveness when I make those mistakes and also uh, having other people help me to forgive myself. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose for you, your experience, the need for forgiveness was very acute then, I suppose. Um, yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, you know, I, as you know, I deal with a lot of guys who are incarcerated now. And um, it's not just a need to be forgiven because I'm not saying that's easy, but it sort of comes first, you know, that, that we acknowledge that, that the creator exists, that he created us uh, before all time and, and, and had a plan for us and he's willing to love and forgiveness. Then after that, it becomes even more important to be able to forgive yourself, mm. you know, and, and be able to then, then be able to forgive other people. I, I know a lot of guys in jail that really hang on like, well, so-and-so person testified against me or uh, my wife left me or my girlfriend stole my money or this kind of stuff. Like, if we're not willing to forgive others, it seems very unlikely that we'll be forgiven ourselves. So, mm -hmm. so it becomes this progression of forgiveness, like acknowledging that God wants to forgive us and wants to love us uh, without condition, uh, and then being able to say that, okay, I, I'm not worthy of that, but I can be made righteous by Christ and sanctified. And then my response to that is to be able to forgive other people and acknowledge, mm -hmm. like just to sit in front of someone and say, like, dude, I completely forgive you. Like, I don't care if you testified against me. I don't care what you said about me when I was locked up. Like, I actually forgive you and, and it's over. 
So do you think the inability to forgive is a problem in our world? Well, I, I'm sure in the whole world, uh, I'll use Baltimore specifically, because, you know, I live in Baltimore City, which is rife with violence. Um, and a lot of young men who, um, who who just commit atrocious acts, you know, they, they, well, it's funny, like there's almost no cross-racial crime. So a white person in the suburbs coming to the city is not going to be shot, although they don't, they don't understand that. Uh, it's all young men that are fighting with each other and shooting each other. And it's not like if you ever seen the TV show, The Wire, as they portray Baltimore, which is totally not true at all. The, the violence is not over drug turfs or gangs. It's over um, it's over an inability for young men to forgive each other such that they have to, you know, like I always say to the boys I talk to in jail, like when I was a kid, uh, you could actually have a fist fight with someone and lose and still later, maybe a couple months later, be friends with the guy. Because you, I, I remember actually one time I got the stuffing kicked out of me and my brothers were like, yeah, but you got a good shot in there. Like you really gave me your best, you know? And I didn't feel the need to go back and 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 bring 10 guys with me, as the boys would say now, say to bank him uh, and, and or to bring a gun and to shoot him. But now it's this escalation so that they, they can't forgive each other and they can't forgive any uh, transgression. So they can't forget any transgression. So the violence in Baltimore is mostly centered over uh, someone stepped on their sneakers and it escalated from there, or someone slept with someone's girlfriend and it escalated from there. It's not drug wars. It's not racial crime. It's not, it's, it's not like, it, it's just sin. It's just a hundred percent about mm. sin and the inability to, um, to receive and provide grace to other people. Mm. Well, so unforgiveness is really a, a key driver of violent crime uh, in the world today. I think so. I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess it's anecdotal from my my own experiences, but um, I think I can extrapolate that and say that that's mm. really true. So, what has it meant for you to find forgiveness in Jesus? Um, I mean, it's a life changing event. I don't, I don't even know how to express that strongly enough. I mean. Uh, the fact that I realized that I'm forgiven allowed me to redefine who I was in Christ. You know, instead of defining myself as a traitor, instead of defining myself as a young kid who was smarter than other people, instead of defining myself as a kid who had a lot of money, um, now I can define myself as a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, someone who's on the the path, on the way, so to speak. And uh, and and with that forgiveness in hand, uh, my actions change, my thoughts change. You know, how I treat my wife changes, how I treat other people change, how I, uh, how I treat people that are different from me. You know, one of the things I always say is like, well, sure, it's easy to be loving and kind to people that are very much like you and to whom you agree with. But the trick as a Christian is to agree with people that you, not may not agree, but to love the people that you disagree with. Mm. And it's only through that forgiveness that I'm, I've been able to do that. I, I like to hear people that I disagree with. I like to talk about subjects that, mm. um, and hear from people I disagree with. And that's all based on a confidence in, um, in Christ that allows me to not have to defend myself all the time. Mm. So do you think that you could have found forgiveness without Jesus? No, absolutely not. The flesh is very weak. Uh, and I would say, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, I just say, I don't think there's any such thing as forgiveness without Jesus. Uh, but I'll, I'll just speak for my own, uh, my own story, not for everyone. Some people might disagree with that, but uh, I certainly couldn't, uh, couldn't do that. I mean, my flesh told me every day, like, I mean, we, we, we serve a God who provides a mission that's countercultural, right? So um, 
there's no reason for me to be nice to people. If I'm just a jerk and working in financial markets and making a lot of money, as much money as possible, and uh, I'm out at you know some restaurant and the server doesn't treat me well, like my response is to tell the guy to go f himself, you know, and like uh, and 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 bully him and push him around and make him feel small so I can feel big. Uh, and uh, I, I just from experience, I've I've done this so many times when I was younger that. I realize that my flesh is so incredibly weak that uh, that kindness, uh, love, uh, all the fruits of the spirit, you know, the gentleness, mm-hmm. self-control—they're all—they're all directly related to Christ and the and the uh, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, you know. So. Mm. Now, some would say that your crimes were so massive. I mean, a massive fraud over seven hundred million US mm-hmm. that you should never be forgiven and you should be locked in jail and the key thrown away. How yeah. do you react to that? Yeah, I mean, they're probably right. I mean, uh, the consequence of what I did should have been much more severe. I completely agree. Uh, but isn't Jesus amazing, right? Like, you know, I, I think about this um, thing with Joseph where his brothers come to him for food in Genesis fifty twenty, and like they're terrified he's going to kill them because they've done terrible things to them and they are deserving of being executed. Uh, but he looks at me and goes, what you guys meant for evil, God actually used for good to save many people alive. Hmm. And I think the same, like my, the consequence of what I'd done should have been uh, 30 years in jail and uh, an eternal damnation and just being totally put out of society and unaccepted at any church. But, uh, but the stuff I meant for evil, God actually used it for good to, to save me, but not just me and not just my family and not just my kids, but many people alive. He's given me a message. Uh, that I can carry out to uh, people who are in drug and alcohol addiction, people who are incarcerated, uh, people just, I always joke around, my, uh, I had a former pastor who's retired now, and uh, whenever he met someone who really screwed his life up, he would send them to me because he jokingly said, after talking to you, they're going to feel a lot better about themselves. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so my, my, you know, my, my, I feel like my Ephesians 2.10 uh, mission is, uh, constantly restating my own stupidity in, in order mm. to prove God's great willingness to save. So do you think that's partly the scandal of forgiveness? Hey, man, I'm, I'm, I, I, it's a cheat code, as they say in the video games over here. Like, I, yeah. I got something I definitely didn't deserve, and I was a jerk, and, and uh, I'm pretty happy with that cheat code. That works for me. <laughs> it's just, I'll take that kind of scandal every day. You're right. <laughs> so does your wife trust you with the bank account now? She does actually. It was when I came home from jail. One of the things he said was, "I just I hate paying the bills. I hate like, like I don't want to pay one more bill. I don't want to I don't want to sign one more credit card at any restaurant. She doesn't touch anything anymore. She's like, he <laughs> is doing that. She's she's a very smart uh, young lady and uh, and pretty successful uh, executive as well. But she hates personal finance. So All right, uh, yeah, so <laughs> it's pretty funny. So John, where can I find forgiveness? Uh, in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Mm. It's been transformative for you. Uh, yeah, more than. Mm. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the bigger question, where can I find forgiveness? From Colossians 1, 13 to 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, John Rosnack. Thanks for having me. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.